Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, 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 and welcome, ladybirds and gentle lemurs, to the Human Nature Podcast. Here we explore the ups and downs of being Homo sapiens and learn a thing or two on how to be a better animal. My name is Elliot Connor, and I'm at least half elephant. But the star of the show today is none other than Jennifer Jones, a social entrepreneur, compulsive optimist, and educational thought leader. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Great. So, yeah, I'm fascinated to see where the conversation today leads. Uh, clearly, your background uh, is one which is fascinating in this educational domain. Uh, you've designed 24 schools, I believe, uh, yes. which is a feat in itself, uh, but very much looking uh, towards the future of education and where this whole structure may lead. Uh, so can you give us some background in terms of where you're coming from and how that shaped uh, the way that you look at this sector. Sure. Uh, I think most people would probably find it interesting to know that I'm in this field because I don't like it. A long time ago, I was in high school, and I had a kind of awakening. In the U.S., in our schools, public schools are typically identified by and separated by social and economic conditions. So, um, for instance, a public school that exists in a neighborhood with very little economic resources typically reflects that. And similarly, one sitting in an affluent community reflects uh, affluence. And there are a lot of reasons for that that nobody cares about. But I happen to have been in a high school that lacked resources. And I was in a high school in the Deep South and in the Deep South in the US, um, those conditions are often accompanied or correlated with racial statistics. So uh, I was in a school where the majority of the students were African American and um, on the lower income scale. And this wasn't a new context for me, but for some reason, one day I woke up during high school and it was all really clear to me. And I suddenly couldn't not notice the differences. I was suddenly aware of a school where individuals just as talented, just as capable, with just as much potential as anybody else in the world simply lacked opportunity. And I'll be honest with you, back then as a teenager, I was determined to solve that problem. And so that was what I set out to do. Um, Obviously, I didn't solve that problem just yet. Uh, not yet, anyway. I have been working okay. on it for quite a while. 
uh, I'm still working on it and I haven't given up, but uh, that is very much what brought me into the field of education. That was one of the first elements of education that I, I felt discouraged about. And so the more I stayed involved in the field, the more things I noticed that I didn't like. Uh, in fact, every year I notice something else I don't like. <laughs> and this really drives me, uh, keeps me energized uh, because I'm never going to be out of a job as long as the current educational system continues the way that it is. Uh, I am determined to uh, liberate young people from what I consider to be a really oppressive, limiting system. And so that is the theme of my career, although my projects have spanned, you know, really far and wide across many different domains. But that is always the undercurrent for me, is blowing up the system. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I love uh, the gist of that answer there and uh, hearing, speaking uh, with people uh, whose entire aim of their career is effectively to make themselves obsolete uh, to <laughs> try and reform the system so that they're no longer needed within it, uh, so that yes. it runs smoothly, effectively, and uh, with... Uh, all these ideal traits uh, which we're trying to bring into the educational system. Uh, so that's wonderful to hear. I'd just love to flip it as well. So uh, we've heard a bit about your background, where you're coming from. I'd love to hear what you may see as the future of what you're doing, uh, what the aspiration would be uh, 20, 50 years into the future, uh, what that legacy uh, perhaps that you'd love to leave behind uh, would be. I know that many of the schools you created, uh, so... Uh, the Green Ivy schools in New York uh, being a great example of this. Uh, but they all have this futurist sense to them. They're uh, having these new practices, uh, models established within them, uh, which are very much leading conversations in this educational sector. So where would you like uh, this uh, field to go in a few decades' time? Uh, what would you like to see? Hmm. Great question. Uh, the the truthful answer is I'd like to see the system go away. I don't think it's a good system. I don't think it serves us. Mm. That said, generally speaking, what I think education isn't doing, that it is beautifully positioned to do, is to future forecast and project and position and uh, pioneer and lead and clear new pathways you know, I really, I, I find it fascinating that education is a discipline that spends most of its time looking back, right? Tradition is the engine of education. If you go into any school in the world, anywhere in the world, even in the re most remote regions of the world, you're going to find a system that looks back at tradition. It's almost as though churches are running schools because they spend so much time doing routines and rituals and ceremonies. And if you ask them why they do it, they'll tell you because we always have, that's the reason. And I just find that an unacceptable reason for an approach to learning in what is supposed to be an evolving species. So, and I also find it really interesting that if you jump over to Silicon Valley or any of its global equivalents, you'll find the opposite behavior. You'll find people who do nothing but look forward, nothing but think about what could be and what's possible. But I, I don't understand why they have all the fun. 
why shouldn't we have the same opportunity in education? Shouldn't we be the ones doing that exercise of envisioning what could be um, and, and focusing on preparing young people for truly futuristic opportunities and, and scenarios rather than giving them information that is outdated almost the minute that they receive it. So that's, uh, you know, one in a very long list of tirades that I have about education, but I'll, I'll just stick with that one. Love it. Love it. And clearly our brainwaves are synced because just as you were mentioning that, that word evolving evolution, that's what I was writing down my little sheet of paper here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think uh, we need to recognize that nature teaches us about change. It teaches us that uh, we are in this dynamic equilibrium. Uh, we're always changing, always adapting, evolving uh, to suit new circumstances. Uh, but humans are so good at changing the world around them uh, that sometimes we try and circumvent uh, that need to adapt. Uh, so especially in the educational system in certain areas of our society, uh, we're seeing that we've stopped, we've stagnated or even are going backwards. So fascinating to think about that as well. It reminds me of the Flynn effect, which I'm sure you'll be well aware of, mm-hmm. uh, but Lovely piece of research uh, done uh, by Flynn, uh, this researcher, James John Flynn, something like that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you can correct me there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Flynn found uh, via large number of studies uh, that uh, the IQ of successive generations uh, was uh, going backwards. Uh, so I think it peaked in the 90s, uh, late 20th century, certainly. And now my generation would be less intelligent uh, than the prior one and it's yeah lovely because we have no, no idea why uh, there have been lots of explanations about why this may be and uh, what the cause behind it is uh, or perhaps it's been going on longer than we realize and there have been other factors masking uh, that gradual uh, decrease in IQ uh, but I think it really reflects on the way we're learning now and uh, perhaps in school systems we're not being taught how to learn uh, we're rope learning in many cases statistics, facts, figures, uh, without uh, going to the core of the matter, uh, learning how to learn, learning those soft skills, uh, learning those traits, which will prepare us uh, for the 21st century indeed. And I believe the animal uh, you've chosen to speak about today, I know I put you on the spot uh, just before we started recording, uh, but the animal uh, which came to mind for yourself was the wolf uh, being uh, this pack animal, uh, social animal established in these very clear hierarchies, very clear roles, and uh, working collaboratively in that manner, uh, which creates such an effective uh, animal predator in its ecosystem uh, that allows it to thrive uh, across uh, these uh, natural habitats. Uh, But I think that's a lovely uh, way of looking at things, uh, that schools are like these packs, uh, classrooms uh, within which you have uh, these ecosystems, these learning environments. And if you draw the analogy further, uh, then working out how we can design uh, maybe our human systems, our school systems, uh, to embrace uh, those uh, sorts of constructs, uh, try and keep uh, that tight-knit structure uh, without having uh, too much of a dominating uh, teacher figure uh, within the classroom, uh, but having uh, that strong 
focus on dialogues, on exchanges, on uh, collaborative learning. Uh, so I'd love to hear more about uh, the way you see yourself and the work you do as being uh, like this pack, like being like wolves. Uh, can you elaborate on that as well? Uh, sure. I, I have to wrap my head around that positioning because you, in all fairness, you asked me, I think you asked me what animal I identify with or something along those lines. Mm. So if you asked me what species I would attach to schools or school systems, I'm not sure I would pick wolves. I'd have to really think about that for a minute. Um, mm. Let's think about schools as a species, right? As a, uh, because it does kind of become its own. Let's look at its characteristics. First of all, it's reclusive. You know, a school is reclusive. A school shuts its doors. Many of them shut their windows. I have this game I play with my friends when we walk through neighborhoods. Uh, I'll see an institution and I'll challenge them to tell me if it's a prison or a school. It's very hard to tell because they look almost exactly the same. Um, they were, in fact, uh, designed that way. Uh, those who designed schools took a lot of notes from prisons uh, in the design. There's a lot of documentation of that, which is pretty scary. So we've got a reclusive creature, one that shuts itself in, uh, one that relies on tradition and the past as a source uh, guide for information and, and protocols. And, uh, you know, one that really uh, believes what it tells itself. So what would that species be? I, you know, right from the start, I'm imagining it's got to be an insect. <laughs> uh, I certainly am not sure I would attach it to wolves, um, only in that uh, schools can have predatory behavior. But aside from that, I don't associate any of the positive qualities of wolves with schools. Um, they... Yes, there is a culture of loyalty, I suppose. So I guess we could make that correlation. I, I don't feel that that's a very positive, a positive quality, but I think we can attach that. Yeah, I, I don't know. Whatever species a school is, it isn't one that would survive or evolve in the real world, right? Um, it's not one that in the real dynamics of a natural ecosystem it would definitely have been eliminated a long time ago. So uh, maybe we should compare it to something on Galapagos, you know, something that hasn't really had to stand the test of a real ecosystem. <laughs> that maybe that's what we should be comparing it to. Sorry, is my bitterness coming out? I don't, I just don't have a lot of respect for those systems. So, um, and I have deep respect for nature. So it's gonna be very hard for me to insult anyone in nature by comparing them to a school system because I, I, I don't think that there are any real positive qualities there to be related. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Yeah, I was taking a few notes down there trying to work out what this animal would be. <laughs> As you say, uh, very clearly, uh, you could draw parallels to the insect world. Uh, perhaps we're trying to transform schools from wasp nests, wasp colonies to wolf packs something like that mm -hmm. uh, or you mentioned a species which would fail in the wild as uh, so you have those mm -hmm. uh, species which uh, perhaps are all female so they do parthenogenesis clone themselves and which therefore can't adapt 
Uh, mm-hmm. So can't change mm-hmm. uh, ways looking backwards at what the last generation did and the generation before that and generation before that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, plenty of examples of that. Some stick insect and be another insect analogy you may draw. Uh, or I believe there's a, a Saharan lizard, uh, which is very famous for doing the same thing. Uh, but uh, the final animal uh, I drew up in my list was quokka. So famously on Rotnest Island, uh, where uh, these quokkas have become entirely habituated to humans. Uh, they've uh, become absolutely tame, senseless, uh, stopped uh, behaving in the same manner and become stagnant in this cuddly toy uh, sort of mood. But uh, something like that, or dodo, uh, which has become prey to humans' expectations of it. Uh, so uh, that would be a third comparison uh, you may draw. <laughs> like I like all of these. The dodo, I'm especially fond of attaching hmm. that to schools. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> but I love what you're saying as well uh, about uh, schools and prisons having that similarity. Uh, that wasn't something I've necessarily been aware of. But now that you mentioned it, of course, uh, it's one of those uh, light bulb moments goes off in your head <laughs> where you definitely can see uh, yes. similarities. Yes. I was uh, reading quite recently uh, that I believe in the UK, there are more libraries in prisons than there are in schools, which is one of those facts that, wow, once you read that, you don't forget it uh, because it changes your perspective on how this whole system works. Uh, and uh, the other thing I came across uh, was the Eton. Uh, so famous uh, snobbish <laughs> British uh, yes. private school yes. institution. Yes. Uh, was founded actually to provide free schooling for the poor. Yes. So that's changed quite massively. Certainly, certainly lost their way somewhere along yes. the way. Yes. Definitely. Yes. And they're, so, I mean, they're the captains of tradition, right? Like that's the perfect example. Mm. And it is, of course, as I'm sure you know, the wild success of the British Empire that the world is yeah. stuck with these tradition minded schools. I mean, it is the fault largely of the British Empire. It is a masterful exercise in colonization. I have been in schools around the world that were at once or still are colonized by Britain, who with nothing but a concrete shell and not even schools with any materials of any kind, schools that beg to have paper and pencils um, and operate largely in decrepit shells of concrete still maintain a deep devotion to the British model of education. They do everything in their power to fulfill that dream of finely controlled student population and a caste system of learning and you know all those other lovely elements of that system. Um, so yeah, that's what we have. It's worldwide, it's pervasive. And if it were not for that, I really believe we wouldn't have most of the challenges that we face today. I really believe that. I think if schools had been an exercise in horizon watching and ad- adaptive behavior, I don't think we would be facing any of the um, catastrophic issues that we face right now. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. And uh, it reminds me, I guess, of how much we can look at uh, learning in nature itself. Uh, Perhaps we can take a few clues from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were talking about 
uh, this global schooling system and uh, the three words came to me were wood wide web. Uh, so this new area of research uh, into uh, fungal mass between plants, uh, yes. given this punny title, uh, the wood wide web, uh, but these uh, mycorrhizal uh, fungi, as they're called, uh, yes. deliver information between plant roots. So yes. allow these communities to adapt, to evolve, to share resources, share knowledge and yes. uh, pass it down uh, between families across communities, uh, creating these incredible networks uh, yes. which we're just finding out about. Yes, uh, mycelium. Think, mycelium is there you go. an extraordinary organism and a representation of unity and community and communication and mutual support and balance. Yeah. And it, and it's that system and so many others that are tied to it or parallel to it. We are oblivious to those there, you know, we never really stop and examine those systems, adopt elements of those systems, you know, rarely are those the model for what we do, but I would support biomimicry as the core of any STEM curriculum. For me, it should all begin. And the beauty of biomimicry, of course, is you can begin with biomimicry as a STEM curriculum at age two, right? You can actually start yeah. uh, learning from the engineering of nature at a very young age because at that age, we're all fascinated already by the engineering of nature. It is the thing we're most interested in is how nature works. And so... I appreciate what you're saying about the way that web works and so many other invisible systems around us. Slime mold is another area a lot of people haven't explored, but slime mold is incredible and still not fully understood. But a single cell organism that appears to have tremendous intelligence is being used right now you know, to help design Tokyo's subway system and other other pretty complex feats. You know, slime mold is taking those jobs right now, not robots. Definitely. Now, I love that comparison with the slime mold as well. Uh, this organism, which doesn't have a brain, uh, which mm-hmm. is essentially a collection of tiny, tiny uh, little microorganisms coming together, mm-hmm. having this collective intelligence, as you mm-hmm. say. We think it might memory. have memory. And, mm-hmm. and that's important. You know, when an organism doesn't have a brain, but demonstrates memory, you know right away that that's yet another realm of science where we thought we knew what we were talking about, but we clearly don't. And we can't see with the tools we have, what's sitting probably right in front of us to explain that phenomena. But, you know, that alone should trigger some deep investigation. When an organism can demonstrate memory without a brain, that should be an entire realm of study. Definitely. It's a profound challenge Mm -hmm. uh, to what we define intelligence as being, uh, Mm -hmm. similar to when we came up with the slur bird-brained, because we couldn't find a neocortex and birds' brains didn't dissections. Uh, mm-hmm. This cheetah mammalian intelligence was missing, mm-hmm. so we assumed they were stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now, by coming across slime mold, doesn't have a brain, still possesses these incredible abilities. But isn't it? Doesn't this all stem from a disrespect for what makes intelligence what it is? I mean, aren't we super human centric in our definition of intelligence, right to begin with? I mean, even, you know, just a moment ago, you were citing a book about IQ and I didn't want to interrupt you and I didn't want to go off on a rant about IQ, but 
I could because it's so <laughs> narrowly defined and it has been, um, I feel, one of the uh, downfalls of education, this reliance on a very narrow definition of IQ. One of the 24 schools that I built was a school that I decided to build when I realized that the city I was in was pushing all the students who had a certain kind of intelligence out of the schools, right? And it was because schools didn't recognize and appreciate that kind of intelligence and where it came from. They were measuring intelligence based on very traditional processes, you know, uh, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Oh my gosh, I can't even believe that's still a thing today. But, you know, these are the basic metrics, you know, can someone perform these tasks on a piece of paper with a writing instrument, you know, using textbooks and performing basic reading, et cetera. And I, I, having observed young people around the world who lack resources for that type of education, I have noticed that they still grow with really meaningful skill sets. Many of them more skilled for survival and human interaction and social success than the young people who pass successfully through traditional schools. And so I wanted to test that theory. You know how I love to test theories. So I wanted to test that theory and I built a school and I went around to all of the traditional schools and I said, I want all of the kids you don't want, give them to me. The ones you most want to get rid of, I want them. And uh, I knew that it was going to be a treasure chest of, of brilliance. And in fact, it was. And so I designed a program that invited them to access what we associate as academic knowledge and skills, the deep sciences, mathematics, mathematical theory, literature, et cetera. But I changed the entryways. So instead of having to do that through traditional formats, I came up with new formats, uh, movement, athletics, dance, music, um, and so many other cooking, so many other uh, entry points for those realms of knowledge. And it was fantastic. It was very clear, like from day one, that all of them were packing some very serious intellectual uh, ammunition, but they just didn't have a place or the proper vehicle for firing it. And I continue to believe that. I think we really lack of respect for the way the human brain develops with or without uh, a classroom and desks and a board and a teacher. I think the assumption that the human brain only evolves if it has the British model to support it is uh, really short-sighted. Very much so, yes. And I believe the word school itself uh, comes from the ancient Greek for free time. So uh, that <laughs> idea that we learn through an exploration uh, through following our interests, passions. I know uh, there are quite a number of uh, innovating companies that give their employees, I think it's 10% of their time is paid mm -hmm. uh, time to explore uh, what they're interested in, passionate about. And that often leads to some of the greatest breakthroughs. Uh, so it's uh, fascinating models to explore. Uh, obviously, you were talking about uh, IQ, intelligence, and uh, what that might mean. Uh, and bringing it back, I guess, you know, to animals, uh, to that natural context. And that's, by the way, what I had intended to mm. do, but I lost my way in the middle of my rant. Uh, you know, but that's what we 
We also disrespect, just in the same way we disrespect the intelligence of someone who may have grown up in a, you know, an impoverished setting with no resources, we also lack a respect for pretty much every species. You know, we don't bother to stop and understand the architecture of their intelligence, right? How is it shaped? What does it do? How does it function? What does it tell us? Can we translate it? And I think if we really took time to examine the intelligence of each species and, you know, not just the visible ones, the, the microorganisms particularly, uh, I think we would learn so much as our own species. I'm, I'm so happy about COVID right now because at least we're learning about another species intelligence, right? That COVID forces us to understand the enemy, so to speak. We have to understand. And in getting to know our enemy, we think COVID is our enemy, but getting to know it really helps us appreciate the fact that there are other things out there in the world that we can and cannot see that do not think the way we do and may be a lot smarter than we are. And I think we could use humbling right now as a species, major humbling by pretty much every other species around us. So there you go. I was trying to honor your show by tying it back and then I lost my way. So I love that. Love that. We need humbling as the human species. And uh, you're right. Viruses, uh, there's that ongoing debate whether they're alive or dead even, yet they mm -hmm. can still take down the whole human civilization mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, for an entire year. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been quite a humbling lesson, uh, as you say. But I just have one final question okay. uh, for you uh, to round out the show. And it stems from something, again, I came across quite recently, uh, which was that in Armenia, I believe chess is a compulsory school subject. So I think you know what's coming, but the <laughs> classic question for you is if you could add a new class, new subject to a school, what would that be? Uh, travel. Travel. <laughs> I like that. It would be compulsory travel. Yeah. So for example, uh, taking the same population that I mentioned before, as that school evolved, the one that I created, um, then I turned it into uh, an experiential school. And uh, I purchased a large bus. I put it out in front of the building. And I told the teachers that I wanted them to use that bus all the time, that I should never see it parked out front. And they didn't have to have a plan, although plans are always good, but they could just hop on the bus with their kids and then randomly ride through town looking for something they wanted to explore. Uh, this was a very large urban area with at least 30 different nationalities um, spread out across the region. So there was a lot to explore and a tremendous uh, volume of natural phenomena for them to explore as well. And then I decided to make it bigger. So then I began to make it a global travel experience and I would take children between the ages of eight and 15 on law, you know, relatively long-term journeys, one to three weeks at a time to places around the world, we would live in those places and we would learn from the environment, the experience. So good example. Um, I took about 30 young people to Santiago de Chile. And in Santiago, there is a children's burn center. Many people don't realize that in South America, there's still quite a bit of use of fires for cooking. 
And so there's a burn center in Santiago because a lot of children are burned from the presence of fires in their home. And so my uh, young people coming from a very urban American city, never having left their own neighborhood, then spent three weeks in Santiago in a children's burn center. They didn't speak any Spanish when they got there, but they all could speak Spanish before they left. Not only that, yeah. but their friends were burn victims. That's how they came to know their friends. And that's who they learned Spanish from. And they volunteered in the burn center and we traveled the region. We learned about the coastline and uh, you know, realized that North America was not the center of the universe and uh, really you know, got to know that part of the world and the culture of that part of the world in a really rich and dynamic way. And you know what? These are all people that would have been written off by the typical schools. And they thrived in this experience and had quite a bit of contribution to make. Um, so I've done a number of those as um, demonstrations of what's possible. But yes, travel is a compulsory experience because one day of travel equals years of school. It does the same thing to your brain that schools struggle to do over years and years of effort. One, one day in an unfamiliar environment, your brain is never the same again. You are completely transformed. Agreed. And I think that's a wonderful point to end on as well. I've never heard that answer, but I love it as well. I'm going to have to bring it moving forward. Uh, travel as a subject in schooling. Uh, you, you're right. You do learn so much from putting yourself in that novel context. It's never really about what you learn. It's about your sense of possibility because the learning follows. But if you think that the world is a very narrow place, right? Your assumptions about the world are closed and tight then your potential for learning is really quite limited. But if you think that the world is literally infinite, you can't deny yourself the curiosity to know more about it. So one day of travel will trigger a sense of unlimited possibility. And that is enough to motivate most people to stretch themselves. And I think that's what we need in the world. We need each person to be stretching themselves to reach their ultimate potential. And, and that's what I fear schools discourage. Right. Wonderful. No, I love that as a thought. And uh, Jennifer, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Same. Human Nature Cast today. I'm sure all our audience uh, very much appreciated it. It's probably going to be one of our longest episodes yet <laughs> because it was so fascinating. Uh, but I loved it. I'm sure the audience loved it. Great. And I we'll, so. of course, be back next week with another episode. Thank you all. And goodbye. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.